0: We're in Exodus 40. We've come to the final week. Uh, a few weeks ago, I said I had a couple more, and I added one, so this is the last one because it's Exodus 40. So it's got to be it. All righty. Exodus 40, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony. And you shall screen the ark with the veil. And you shall bring in the table and arrange it. And you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. And you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. This is the Word of God. Please be seated. Church, we've got a visual of, of what that may have looked like, the tabernacle and, its, uh, and the whole court. The tabernacle itself is that smallish building right in the center of it, and then it's surrounded by the tabernacle court. Maybe it'd be something about this size. Maybe the uh, tabernacle building would be about the size of this stage, it'd be about 800 square feet. And then the court itself would be about 11,000 square feet, so maybe the size of this room. And in that tabernacle, behind this thick veil that would be six inches wide, 60 feet high, about like this ceiling, 30 feet wide, all the way across the front, behind that would be the Ark of the Covenant. And that Ark of the Covenant would represent, among all places on the planet, where God dwelt. Now, by the way, this graphic is from the ESV Study Bible. I just want to say a couple of things. The most, single most important tool that you could have to help your Bible study would be a good study Bible, not written by one person, but by, written by a hundred scholars. ESV Study Bible, NIV Study Bible, Life Application Bible, there are others, but I would encourage you To get a good study Bible. And you would have graphics like this and all kind of notes. Now, in your daily Bible reading, I'd encourage you just focus on the the words at the top. But from time to time, when you're digging in, you need a little, you have some questions about things, then you can go to those notes at the bottom. A good study Bible can really help. All right, back to the passage. Okay, that tabernacle. Two things about the tabernacle is the presence of God on earth. And it was the place of sacrifice before a holy God. So sin could be dealt with. Now let's look at those each in turn. First of all, that this is the place in the whole universe where God's presence is manifest and tangible. Now there's a paradox there because, well, God fills the universe. He is omnipresent, all present. He's, he's everywhere. So what do we mean that, that God particularly was in that uh, space above the Ark of the Covenant? Uh, we mean that God has a heightened presence at times, a tangible presence, a uh, a focused presence. Uh, he was especially present somehow, some way, in that place, and that's why, from time to time, we might pray something uh, like this here at Woods Edge. We might say, "Lord, would you please pour out your presence this morning?" And we already know that He's here because He fills the universe. But we want His special presence and blessing and favor and and. Uh, Uh, a sense of his uh, manifest presence. Or if we pray, come Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit's already here. But we are praying for more of him. We're praying for especially to come in power and love and grace, his manifest, his heightened, his concentrated presence. Now, in all the universe, the omnipresent God, who is so much bigger than the universe... (laughs) That one lady, uh, Lady Julian, said, you know, it's like that God holds this nut in his hand and that's the entire universe. He's so much bigger. But of all the universe, he said, this is the place where my focused dwelling is going to be, the presence of God on the planet. About three or four times over the last dozen years, I have been in New York City on a Tuesday night and I have gone from Manhattan out to Brooklyn to attend a prayer service at the Brooklyn Tabernacle. Brooklyn Tabernacle is a largely African-American church, though it has great diversity in a poor neighborhood in Brooklyn. And on Tuesday nights, this church has a prayer service. And Brooklyn Tabernacle is widely known as the greatest praying church in America. It had so much influence. Their pastor, Jim Cimbala, has a great book on prayer, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, in our bookstore. And this prayer service on Actually, it's Tuesday nights. Uh, is interesting because there are three or 4,000 people who gather for a prayer service. And they start lining up about an hour before the service starts. And each time I've gone, and I was there this summer again, I have two thoughts at the end. One is that in this service, more than any service I've ever been in, I sense the presence of God. It is just so strong. And secondly, more than any other church service I've ever been in, I sense a passion for God. This heart of love, seeking God, desperate for God. And those two things go together. And that's what we want more and more here at Woods Edge, Sundays and Wednesdays. We want God to pour out his presence. We want God to show up in an unmistakable and a great way. So the presence of God. Now the second thing about the tabernacle was that it was the place of sacrifice because God is a holy God. We're sinful people. Sin has to be dealt with, and God says without the shedding of sin, there, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so they sacrificed these animals. That's what that altar was for. That was that basin with water was for. It was all about they were going to bring these uh, lambs and oxen and and uh, other animals. They were sacrificed, and that was a temporary covering of our sin. Now, none of those sacrifices could really take care of our sin problem. If so, they could stop because sin problem was taken care of. But but they couldn't because they're just animals, and we're humans created in the image of God. An animal's death cannot take the place for a human. But they were a pointer to one day God himself would deal with sin in a conclusive and final way. This is what he did. It's the gospel is that God himself, God the Son, there's God Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, one God, triune, three persons in the Godhead. God the Son came to the planet for the express purpose of becoming a man so that he could die in our place as the sacrifice for sin. And all of those lambs that were sacrificed at at the tabernacle were a pointer to one day the Lamb of God would come and die for our sin. You know, when Jesus came to earth, told in the four Gospels, he had a a messenger who came before him that we call John the Baptist. And in John's Gospel, the first time John sees Jesus at this public ministry, in John 1, 29, he has an unforgettable line. He says, behold, speaking to those around him, behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And why does he call him the Lamb of God? Because he is the fulfillment. He is the Lamb above all lambs. He fulfills the sacrificial blood of every lamb ever slain. And he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because he is human, he can die in your place. And because he is God, he can die in all of our places. He was, he is, the the sinless Lamb of God. So the tabernacle in the Old Testament beginning about 1400 B.C., during the time of Moses, when they got out of the land, the whole point of that was a special presence of God and a special place of sacrifice for sin. Now, in this passage, God just told Moses, it's time to build it. He has given them instructions in the previous chapters, now it's time to build it. And then, beginning in verse 9 through 33, they all build it. And at the end of verse 33, this is what we read, so Moses finished the work. He completed it. He finished the work. And that little phrase is probably pregnant with meaning because the book of Exodus, the whole thing is a pointer to even a greater rescue from slavery, that at the cross and resurrection of Jesus. So it's all about Jesus rescuing us from slavery to sin. In John's gospel again, Jesus in John 4 was talking to a woman at the well and wasn't hungry, wasn't eating, and the disciples came back, you know, why aren't you eating? And he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish, to finish his work. Now that work included speaking and teaching and healing and all kinds of things, but primarily it included, or it referred to the fact that he, his work was to die on the cross and pay for our sin. He said, that's my, that's my, that's my food. I want to do the will of the Father. And I want to accomplish, I want to finish his work. And then at the end of John's gospel, in John 19, when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he's been hanging there for several hours and now he is about to die, one of his last things to say was, It is finished. I've come to finish the work of God. I've come to fulfill the words of Moses who finished the work of God about the tabernacle and now it is finished and he dies and he pays. For all of our sins. It's paid for. And so, Moses, we see, obeys the Lord. He finishes the work. Now, the, this passage I didn't read, between 9 and 33, gives great emphasis to the fact that Moses obeys the Lord. He obeys the Lord. He obeys the Lord. For example, verse 16 This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did really three times in that verse, emphasizing he obeyed the Lord. This he did, according to all that God had said, this he did. And then there is a repeated phrase that begins. In verse 19, it simply says, this is what Moses did, as the Lord had commanded Moses. And then in verse 21, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 23, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 25, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 27, verse 29, verse 32, so that if we were reading through that, we would just get this strong, unforgettable message, Moses obeys the Lord. And that, that goes hand in glove with the presence of God. Because if you want to experience the presence of God, then you've got to obey the Lord. Because if we live in sin, if we live in disobedience, then God will not allow us to get close to Him. Now, all of our sins paid for, but we will know God from afar unless we live our lives in obedience to Him, to please Him because that expresses our love. Now, there is a classic passage in the New Testament, John 14:21, that talks about this. Now, by the way, if you don't know John 14:21, I would really encourage you to memorize the verse. I imagine that when uh, Randy Youngling, the big guy who uh, is our pastor of adult ministries, uh, he's the man who discipled me as a new Christian at Rice University, and I'm sure that Randy had me learn this verse my freshman year. This is the verse for all of us to learn and memorize and be part of. This is what it says, John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So that's saying that if you love Jesus or if you claim to love Jesus, it's going to be shown with one acid test obeying him. You're going to do what he says. And when you do that, you know what's going to happen? The Father is going to draw close to you, pour out His love to you, manifest Himself to you. The Jesus is going to just draw close to you. You're going to be intimate with, with the Father and with the Son and with the Spirit. He will get close to you. Just like in the Old Testament with the tabernacle, obedience is the pathway to the poured-out presence of God. And it's true in our lives. So, are you obeying the Lord? Well, let me say this. Um... My experience with we Christians is that all of us are good at obeying the easy ones. You know, probably none of you yesterday was even t- were even tempted to violate the uh, commandment about do not murder. You know, we're good at, at some of those. We're not really threatened by those. We're not really pushed by those. But what about the tough ones that are widely disobeyed? What about love, love God and not money? And... and a, uh, in an atmosphere where greed and materialism are rampant, that we could just enjoy things but not love things or live for things? What about the passage about forgiving those who sin against you just as God has forgiven you? Now that's a tough one for all of us, for me. But God says obey him. So we choose to let that person go. We choose, make a decision, to forgive the person. What about your money? It's the first 10% automatically given to God, at least the first 10%. I mean, that's just a no-brainer if you are all in to obey Jesus. What about no, do not gossip? What about marital fidelity? Faithful to that, 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 that woman, that man, uh, for, for better or for worse, till death do us part. What about uh, uh, sexual... Uh, Purity and your your mind and internet pornography, things like that. Those are the commands that would be the acid test. You know, those commands that might challenge us a bit. Not that you're perfect, not that we're perfect, but we're all in for Christ. And there's no area of secret sin we're holding on to and saying mine, but we're saying, God, you got it. Now let me ask you, you talk about loving God, but is there any area of open rebellion in your life this morning? If so, give it to God right now. Depend upon Him to give you strength and grace, not your strength, but Lord, I need your help for this, but you got it. Earlier before the service, there were a few guys standing around uh, with the armor of God ministry, and one of them had this shirt on that I thought was different, unusual. It said, burn the ships. And I immediately think of the Cortez-Aztec story And uh, I said, you know, what does that shirt mean? (laughs) And he said, in fact, it does refer to the Cortez story with the ships. Many of you know the story. You know, sometime back in the, what, 1500s, Cortez lands on the shore of Mexico with 600 men, you know, a fleet of ships. They're going to attack the Aztec Indians. You know, not a good purpose, but that's what they were going to do. And it had to be an incredible shock to those men. Their great chagrin. When they got off the ships, he gave gave the command, burn the ships. We're not leaving. And the phrase became, fight or die. We're all in here. We're taking that hill. Now, if he can do it for a, a very evil cause, for the greatest cause in the universe, can you say, I am all in for Jesus Christ? Well, if so, what area of your life Are you holding back on that you need to give to him this morning if there's anything and it probably is because you're not perfect either what can you bring to god just ask him lord what do i need to give to you this morning if you want to experience the full presence of god uh he who has my commandments and keeps them that's the one who does all righty okay they they build the tabernacle just like we finished so moses finished the work and then what happens well We are going to look at the last few, four or five verses. Verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, that must have been incredible. I mean, they're out there. They finish it. They walk out, and then this cloud of the the presence of God in the wilderness descends upon the the tabernacle, and the glory of God just fills that place. I mean, what was that like? I mean, the the glory of God, the radiant splendor of God representing all of his beauty, His, his attributes. Uh, our Our church plant down the rice area, Dwight Edwards, describes glory this way. He says, I like to call it his spectacularness. His glory is his stunning radiance, the overwhelming splendor of his excellence, his incomparable and exquisite beauty. The Hebrew term for glory comes from a root meaning heavy or weighty. God's glory carries the full weight of all of his attributes. The Bible likens that glory to images such as a blinding light, raging fire, crashing thunder flashing lightning and a magnificent rainbow and somehow in some visual tangible uh visceral way the glory of god fell there and they all knew it the glory of god now a few chapters back remember a couple of weeks ago we we looked at it when moses said lord show me your glory and i've encouraged you make that your daily prayer lord show me who you are show me your glory and god says yes moses i will i will show you my goodness Because if you're really going to grasp the glory of God, it's not just his greatness and his power and his might. It is his love and his kindness and his mercy and forgiveness. That's the glory of God. He is so good. So good. And so the glory of God fell on that tabernacle. Now, it must have been something to be there that day and to see the glory of God fall on the tabernacle. But you have an immense advantage over all of those Israelites, including Moses. Because... You live this side of Jesus, and it is in Jesus Christ, in His face, in His life, that we see the full glory of God. So that when John 1, 14, we read, and and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Let me just take a quick pause. The original Greek word for the word dwelt is the word tabernacle, used in the Old Testament as a verb for tabernacle. And so what God is saying is that Jesus is the new tabernacle. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He goes on, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory of God is seen in the life of Jesus. That's where we see His beauty and His splendor more than any other place. And we've got this great advantage. We we read the Gospels, we see the glory of God like none other. Now, of all of the incredible things that Jesus did. The greatest place of his glory is a paradox because it was when he hung on a cross and Satan thought he had won the battle and those Jewish and Roman leaders thought they had won the battle and when he was hanging on that cross, he was glorified more than any other time. There you see the full love of God. God proves his own love for us in this and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There you see the holiness of God because sin must be dealt with. There you see the mercy of God because God himself deals with our sin. There you see the justice of God because sin had to be paid for. There you see the wisdom and the beauty of God, the the marvelous plan of the gospel that God himself takes. You see the glory of God more than any other place when Jesus is hanging from a cross. And that is why, one of the reasons why every week, every week we come and we remember the cross. We remember the cross. We remember the cross. And then he rose in glory on the third day because death couldn't hold him. We see the power of God. So we see the full glory of God with the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, the the glory of God. Now, interesting, the very next verse, verse 35, the glory is so thick they can't go in there. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So, so he, he just couldn't even go in there. Now, we have known in the past that when there's a tent of meeting or the tabernacle later that Moses at times goes in there. But, but in this initial time, it was so thick with the presence of God, he couldn't go in, just couldn't do it. You know, you, you and I are filled with the Spirit of God if we're believers, or we ought to be. And we ought to be so filled with the Spirit of God that there is no room for anything else in our lives. No sin. You know, we're so surrendered, yielded to the Spirit of God. Lord, I want to please you more than I want to breathe. There ought to be no room for anything else. We have no appetite for it. So, what do we see about the tabernacle? Built about 1400 B.C. We see that it is the place of the presence of God in the universe. And we see it is the place where the sacrifice of God was made, pointing to the one-day final sacrifice of Christ. Now, 400 years later, David is king, about 1,000 B.C., and, and, and David looks around and says, I've got this marvelous home, my palace, but God has this temporary building. God, can I build you a house for you to dwell in, your special presence? And remember, God said to him, no, you cannot because of all the war you've been fighting. You gather the materials. Your son Solomon, he can build the temple. And that happened over a 40-year period, culminating about 960 uh, B.C., the temple was constructed, and now there's no longer this mobile tent of meeting, but a a permanent place, and it was built up on this tallest point in Jerusalem, Mount Zion. And there was this gleaming, white, beautiful temple, and they moved in that temple the Ark of the Covenant and the altar and the basin and all those uh, furnishings. And they put in that curtain, and they put in that uh, ark, they put in the tabernacle right before the ark this thick curtain. Again, six inches thick. Because God is a holy God. And you just couldn't just kind of waltz in there. But only one person could go in, the high priest representing all the people, and only once a year could he go in. And when he went in, they had to tie a rope to his leg because if he had a heart attack and died in there, nobody else could go in there. Drag out the body, they had to pull him out. Because God is a holy God. And this big curtain, just God is holy. You know, don't be casual in your approach to God. So that was in 1000 B.C., And when they constructed that temple, in 1 Kings 8, 10 and 11, there's some very interesting words. This is what happens. And when the priest came out of the holy place, not the holy of holies, but right before it, the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord. So that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Now that's almost exact language from, from our passage, verse 35 cloud descended glory was so thick priests couldn't go in it's the presence of god so the presence of god the tabernacle 400 years later in 1000 bc now it became the temple and then one day a baby was born just outside of jerusalem and that baby was god himself the temple of god so that he could say at one point probably standing out in front of the temple that Herod had built. Solomon's temple was destroyed some years back and Herod rebuilt the temple later. And he said, you know, if you destroy this temple in three days I'll make another one. And they were looking up at that temple thinking, in three days he's going to rebuild that temple? But what was he talking about? He's talking about the temple of his own body. He's referring to his body. You destroy this temple, three days I'll rise from the dead. So he Becomes in his self, in his person, the new temple of God. And that is his presence. He came, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He is the temple of God. And then Jesus dies, is resurrected, ascends to heaven forty days later, and he sends his spirit to indwell believers. Not buildings, not the building in Jerusalem. That was going to be destroyed completely in 70 A.D. But believers, and we become the temple of God. So that Paul, in 1 Corinthians 6, could say, he says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Do you understand, uh, Paul is writing to them, your body is the temple of God. I mean, that sacred, sacred temple Up on Mount Zion, that's not the temple anymore. You're the temple. And church, this morning, you're the temple. You're the place that the infinite God inhabits on the planet. You and me. I mean, is that not special? Is that not mind-blowing? Elsewhere in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing the whole church together And he says to them in chapter 3, verse 16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Now, this is a good time to have an ESV study Bible or some good study Bible because they would tell you that that word you is not singular you but plural you so that if he was a good Texan, he wouldn't have to be confusing and say you. He could say y'all. He could say, do you not, not know that y'all are the temple of God? All of y'all, together. Uh, by the way, the ESV study Bible, or study Bibles should say that. I don't know if they do, but they ought to. And, and if, if, they, if they don't say it, at least the marginal reference ought to have a note. This is plural here. So this is what Paul is saying. Look, every single one of you, your temples, temples of the living God. But when you come together as a church, man, it is special. It is special. This is my bride. This is my body. The church is unlike any other organization, institution on the planet. This is God's plan. The church, the local church, flawed, sinful individuals who mess up and hurt each other at times. That's where I dwell. That's where I dwell. Woods Edge, that's where I dwell. Not this building. Not this campus. The people. We are a dwelling place of God on the planet. And we are to represent him, salt and light, in every way we can. Now, think about the the, the huge difference in the Old Testament and the New Testament with the presence of God. The Old Testament, you know, there was a temple there. One person could go behind that temple once a year because the holiness of God and sin really hadn't been dealt with yet. But when Jesus Christ is on that cross and he says, it is finished, the work is done, I'm paying for sin right now what does God do? Well in the temple not a couple of miles away that big thick heavy curtain is ripped in two from top to bottom God rips it in two saying that the way into my presence is thrown wide open. Come on in. Because sin has been paid for. You're right Abby. Hallelujah. Sin's been paid for. Now look you don't have access to a lot of people around here. You probably don't have access to your, corporate, your company CEO. You don't have access to the president, to the Supreme Court justice. But you have access 24-7 to Almighty God. Almighty God. 24-7, access, all access to God, anytime. You live with him. He lives inside you. You're with him. Jesus said when, before he left in the Great Commission, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Or no, he said, I will, I will be with you always to the end of the age. And later in Hebrews, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He is here with us. You know, life is so incredibly special. And every single person that we meet, they're so incredibly special. If God, if they know the Lord and God dwells in them. Now, C.S. Lewis said about the presence of God, he said, we may ignore, but we can nowhere evade the presence of God. The world is crowded with him. He walks everywhere incognito. And the incognito is not always hard to penetrate. The real labor is to remember, to attend. In fact, to come awake. Still more, to remain awake. Remain awake to the presence of God all around you. So that when the tough things happen, you get the phone call, the diagnosis is not good, you know that God is right there with you. Right there. You have a setback with your teenager, your kids. God is right here with you. Right here, no matter what all of life, remain awake to the presence of God now there's one final thing about this great passage of the, of the tabernacle in the last few verses and that is the leading of God and so we read in verse 36 throughout all their journeys whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle the people of Israel would set out but if the cloud was not taken up then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and the fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys you know in the Old Testament uh, God led them he led them with that cloud of his presence fire at night cloud and day do you think that in the New Testament with God so much closer to us presence of God intimately all access that he would lead us any less that he cares any less that we would follow his leading not hardly not hardly and so we pray Lord lead me Lord, guide me. Lord, I'm not sure to do what to do about this decision, but would you please guide me? And we, we seek him, we wait upon him till we, till we think we've heard from him. And I know at times it's hard to, you know, Lord, is this you or is this me? Is this my thoughts? Or is this your thoughts? And, and you know we, we, we measure it by the word of God. It's got to line up here. And we, and we seek the Lord. We pray, we wait, we listen. Uh, maybe we, we get quiet, be still, more than we normally do. And we follow his leading. Lord, please show me. There's a play about Joan of Arc written by George Bernard Shaw and, and Joan of Arc apparently talked to so much about God speaking to me, God's voice. And this guy said, you know, why don't God, why don't I have that voice? And, and the Joan of Arc character in the, in the play said this. She said, the voice speaks to you all the time. You just fail to Listen. And I think that's true of me a lot. The voice, the voice of God is speaking to me all the time. I just need to pay attention. And I need to discern my ears to hear God's voice. And maybe you do too. Uh, Jack Deere, whose marvelous book, Surprised by the Power of the Spirit, is in our library, in our bookstore and library. Uh, He quotes a friend of his. And this friend said he felt that God said to him one day something that changed his life. He said, He said he felt he heard this from God. If you ever make it in the Christian life, it won't be because you're a good follower. It will be because my son is a good leader. Put your confidence in his ability to lead you, not in your ability to follow him. And the Lord wants to lead us all. And so we need to have obedient hearts, quiet, waiting, seeking him, ready to hear. Church, this is the tabernacle. It's a preview of the glory of God on earth in Jesus Christ and then the presence of God in our lives. The presence of God and the sacrifice of God that has been made, we live in light of that. A.W. Tozer talked about the presence of God. When he says, he, you know, he made us to live with him and to draw our life from his smile. Friends, this is not religion we're talking about. This is love relationship. Draw your life from his smile and draw close. Stand with me to work. Friend, if you've never received the sacrifice of Jesus for your sin right now, breathe a prayer and say, yes, Jesus, come and save me. I need it. Save me from my sin. And he will. He has. He knows your heart. Lord, he saved you. Tell somebody before you leave today. Papa, may we fall in love with Jesus. May we live in light of your presence, Lord God. May we know that all sin has been paid for and is done. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness, your goodness to us. Amen.